Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Well, hello, hipstorians. Ready for another amazing episode, as they all are. A treat for you this evening. We've got Homer Hickam, who is joining us. And Homer would be probably best known for a movie that came out a few years ago now, but the, it was a young Jake Gyllenhaal starred in it called October Sky, which was about Homer's youth. And that was a pretty exciting youth. So we'll, we'll get into talking to you a little bit about that. You've also had experiences as being a Ford Observer in the US and uh, the US Artillery Division in Vietnam. And you were also a NASA engineer, a teacher. I mean, you've had a jam-packed <laughs> life that anybody would be a somewhat, if not a lot, jealous of. And really looking forward to getting in, letting you share some of your yeah. experiences and with us. Can I just add just a quick glance at Homer's Wikipedia page? As, as a potential interviewer, you're like, where do we begin? It's Any one of those sections would be a podcast episode in and of itself so un, it's unusual for on the historians to be a bit stuck for words Derek where, where do we begin with with Homer? Well I'd, I'd suggest this point perhaps being from Appalachia which has probably had some negative press really as, as a result of a, a certain a certain chemical called Oxycontin but I think there's a, a lot more from your experiences of growing up there that probably portray the real story of the area so maybe we'll, we'll start there and tell us a little bit about your formative years <laughs> well thank you uh, derek and nick oxycontin wasn't even invented when uh yeah. when i grew up in west virginia so it really wasn't a problem uh so uh, let's see where do i begin i was born in 1943 uh there was some unpleasantness going on in europe and the pacific during that time and uh i was born and raised in this little town called colwood which is in west virginia which is the heart of uh, appalachia as you mentioned and uh, my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather were all coal miners. And the little town of Colwood was a pure company town. Uh, there were a lot of company towns in the United States back then. But uh, Colwood was really a pure one where the company owned every house, every fence, every tree, every store. There were two churches in town. The company owned both of them. So the preacher were company men and gave company sermons. And uh, so uh, every every adult male who lived in Colwood worked in the coal mine or worked for the company. Every adult female was either married to a coal miner or a teacher. They were allowed to rent a house from the coal company. Uh, so there was a lot of, uh, it was a different uh, kind of life uh, growing up. But I, uh, I didn't really recognize that it was any different until many years later when I, when I got out and saw the rest of the world. 
<laughs> yeah, normal, normal, normal for you. But I mean, like just imagining that that as it's a design, a town designed to be a certain thing, and the company itself, private enterprise, going out of its way to make sure everybody joins the joins the mine as soon as they're finished school. And there was some pushback, wasn't there, with where you saw yourself um, as a result of the launch of Sputnik One, wasn't it? That's what started your journey. Yeah, well, that's right. Um, it's interesting that Town of Colwood was uh, founded and uh, operated for decades by the most ardent capitalist you had ever known, and they managed to create the most perfect communist organization ever, ever known. <laughs> it was a benevolent dictatorship, and everybody recognized that it was uh, what it was uh, later on. Uh, in terms of Sputnik, so I was 14 years old, in 1957, when the Russians launched Sputnik, we, and we were in the middle of the Cold War. It was a very scary time uh, where, as far as we knew, both sides, uh, both the Soviet Union and the United States, were armed to their teeth with, with nuclear weapons and uh, were quite capable on a hair trigger to destroy both of us. So this was a situation they were really, and, you know, we were, we were, we were ready to go. They were ready to go. And then they surprised us by launching this Earth satellite. And um, it was called Sputnik, and the whole world was talking about it. In the United States, it was like if the Soviet Union had taken a hammer and hit Uncle Sam right between the eyes with it, they could not have startled our government more by doing that. So now, again, I was 14 years old. I was growing up there in uh, Colwood, and I was not a particularly good student. I I loved to read. I was mostly, I, I would have probably, if it hadn't been for Sputnik, I would have probably become a English teacher at some Midwestern university. That was definitely where I was oriented. That's why I've written so many books. But, but because of Sputnik, it chose to actually fly over Colwood. And so, so I, I read that in the newspaper and I told my mom, that I was going to go watch Sputnik fly over. And she told the neighbor lady who told the neighbor lady, went on down the line there. And apparently the message got muddled that you could only see Sputnik from our backyard. So when um, it, it's true. So my dad, who was the superintendent of mine, he comes out on the porch and says, Elsie, why are all these people in our backyard? And she says, well, Homer, I'm a junior. Homer, um, they come to help Sonny, as I was called back then, watch Sputnik fly over. And uh, he said, well, you know, that's not going to happen because I don't think President Eisenhower would ever allow anything Russian to fly over Coldwood. And he didn't. And he went back inside. And uh, but unfortunately, President Eisenhower was not in charge of the laws of physics. So but Nick did fly over and I would not have been more impressed if it had been a a god in a golden chariot flying over. So. At that moment, uh, somehow I saw something really new that was starting, uh, very adventurous. I read a lot of science fiction. Uh, I kind of felt, felt like I wanted to be part of that. So the only th- only way that I could figure out how to do it was to learn how to build my own rockets. Okay. So that started my amateur rocketry career there in uh, Colwood. Wow. So how does one build their own rocket? Well, uh, the first thing that most people discover when they try to build a rocket is it's a lot easier to build a bomb than a rocket. So uh, that's what we discovered. (laughs) So we managed to blow up a lot of things while trying to figure it out. I brought in four other boys that uh, I had grown up with there in Colwood. We, We were Colwood boys. 
And uh, they were anything that I was interested in, they were interested in and vice versa. So if Sonny wants to build a rocket, we're going to help Sonny build a rocket. Uh, we didn't really know what we were doing. So I ended up recruiting a boy that lived two mountains away. In, in southern West Virginia, you measure distances by mountains, not by miles. Miles doesn't do you any good. Um, so he was two mountains away in a place called Bartley. And he also was going to this consolidated high school where we were going, a Big Creek High School. His name was Quentin Wilson, and he was the prototypical nerd of all time. He uh, walked around. He, he was from a very poor family. His father was an alcoholic, was unemployed most of the time. He carried around this huge briefcase uh, full of books. So uh, we, uh, uh, I, I felt like that if uh, anybody would know how to build a rocket, it'd be Quentin. And Quentin did. Uh, actually, he knew how the Chinese had built them a thousand years ago. <laughs> so um, using black powder and some sort of tubing with a constriction at the bottom, the pointy end probably goes up and has fins like an arrow. So Quentin brought that uh, morsel of information to us and we started mixing up black powder. And over the three-year period, the movie uh, makes everything look like it happened real fast, but it took over three years for us to end up building very, very sophisticated rocket engines uh, with the help of our science teacher, Miss Riley, who got us a book called Principles of Guided Missile Design that I later saw in a PhD program for rocket science. And so <laughs> so that's how we build our rockets. It's, it's, and, it's, I'm just thinking it's like <clears throat> usually sometimes when kids get together in, in you know their parents sheds it's to create a band right it's like you were going around <laughs> looking for a drummer looking for a lead singer and a guitarist except in this case you were looking for fellow rocket potential rocket engineers right and you even had a name yeah we were the rocket boys uh, we called ourselves the big creek missile agency named after the high school uh, at that time, uh, again, we're talking about the 1950s. So who was the big rocket scientist in the 1950s? He was a fellow named Werner von Braun, right? Uh, Werner von Braun, as, Werner von Braun, as we called him there in West Virginia. All we knew that he'd been on Walt Disney and now President Eisenhower was saying, um, dear Dr. Von Braun, would you build us a rocket? You know, so so we, were, we were reading about him in there, you know, so it was like, OK, so we wanted to, that's why we called our he was at that time in charge of the Army Ballistic Missile Agency right here in Huntsville, where I am now. And uh, so we named our our little club after, you know, we had we had big dreams. Right. So. We named it after after Bernard von Braun's outfit. Uh, later, he graduated. NASA didn't even exist then, but he graduated uh, up to NASA in, I guess, 58, 59, whenever NASA was formed in that time frame. But we were just bound and determined after a while to learn how to build these things. It, even when it didn't make sense, we just kept going. Wow. In, in fairness, with your name being Homer, you were destined for greatness, obviously, and you, <laughs> you did get there. Because you, you I was away. almost as uh, I was almost as blind as Homer. I, I was. Uh, I had twenty four hundred vision in both eyes, which is really bad. <laughs> I can see about you know uh, a foot in front of you, I, and nobody knew that until I was in the fourth grade. They all thought that that I was sitting next up front in class because I was wanted to be the teacher's pet. I actually couldn't see the blackboard. And so in the fourth grade, the doctor, we had a company doctor came up for some reason and decided to have an eye test. And when it got to be my turn, I couldn't see it, even though I tried to memorize it. I couldn't see it. And all of our parents, all of our mothers were there. OK, mothers were very active in the school. So uh, they said, well, walk up till you can see the biggest letter. So I walked up 
till I was about a foot away and leaned over and said, E, and my mother burst into tears. This is what's wrong with this kid. <laughs> oh, dear. oh yeah. fantastic fantastic <laughs> and tell us like this rocket went up over the, the height of everest right you're 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 the, the, the highest flyer out of the lot nine thousand meters is that right yeah uh I, about five miles i would say yeah, uh, whatever uh, however that equivocates i guess that's uh eight kilometers something like that yeah so what interests me next in your story is so you you would have gone to college you've qualified in, in engineering and the vietnam war has been brewing and it's you know it's going up a level now so were you drafted or did you volunteer to go i did volunteer uh i went uh, i went to virginia tech which was a uh, very difficult my my mom is the one who sent me to virginia tech she's the one who worked at i forgot to apply but she did so Virginia Tech was a very difficult engineering school, but it was also at that time a military college. So I was in the cadet corps uh, there for four years. And however, again, my eyes were a bit of a problem. And so I, I went, I wasn't an idiot. I was in Air Force ROTC. I was planning on hanging out in the officer club and, uh, you know, just having a, a good life. But because of my bad eyes at the end of my at Virginia Tech, uh, they didn't give me a commission. So their Vietnam War was heating up, and so uh, the Army took me and as a private one, and I went all, all, all through all that training till I got my commission. And um, then I was uh, sent out to Dugway Proving Ground, which is out in Utah in the Great uh, Salt Lake Desert. It's kind of a chemical, chemical core outfit. I can't tell you anything that we did there but but and I, I could have stayed but uh the vietnam war was really heating up i had been well trained in the cadet corps well trained by the army and i just didn't think it was right that i don't go so i did volunteer to go to vietnam right. but in my defense it only took me about 48 hours once i was over there to figure out you know what this is not a really good idea so. oh, right yeah okay okay as well you're you're, you're speaking with the benefit of, of hindsight homer you know you, you weren't to know then presumably just what a quagmire vietnam would become so but it it didn't take too long for you to realize that's not where you wanted to be but presumably you didn't have much choice in the matter then once you were there you had to oh yeah sure once I was there, I was, I was in the 4th Infantry Division and in an armored cav uh, outfit. And it's like all wars. Once you uh, get involved in a war, you don't fight for your country. You don't fight for, mm. for any great principles. You fight for the guy that's next to you. And uh, so that's the way it was. It was a crazy, crazy place. And yet we... Um, we did the best we could with what we had, and uh, that's all we could do. Whereabouts in Vietnam did you serve? Okay, so I was over there in 1967 and 68. I was assigned to what was called Two Corps up in the upper highlands, so uh, around Pleiku, uh, up north to Doc To. We had a big battle. That's the first thing I was involved with was a big battle called the Battle of Doc To, mm. uh, where uh, 4th Infantry Division was primarily made of, up of draftees. And they were really cannon fodder. And I saw the very first thing I saw these draftees suck it up and go right up the mountain against the, the entrenched North Vietnamese army, most the bravest men I'd ever seen or imagined that I would see. And so I spent the whole uh, week. I was there during the Tet Offensive in 68. I was in a little fire base called the Oasis out by the Cambodian border. 
Mm. When that happened, after a few days of uh, beating them off out at the Oasis, I was sent back to the armored calf. And so spent most of the rest of the war with them up and down the road there uh, from Contum down to Bama to it. Interesting time. I kind of grew up there in a lot of ways. What age were you when you were there? I well, see, sixty-seven. I was twenty-four, twenty-five years old at that. Right. So I was, I was quite a bit older than most of the guys. Right. I mean, I was a lieutenant, uh, so I was about the same age as most of the officers. Mm-hmm. The guys who did the fighting were eighteen, nineteen years old for the most part. Incredible. So. And like, it's an impossibly large question to ask, but if you could, in in some way, put it into words, what what is combat like at the sharp end? It's um, it's usually abrupt. You don't uh, anticipate it because so many days goes by where nothing happens, especially in a war like Vietnam. It's not like you had a front line. You were basically um, looking back on it now, being uh, a uh, an amateur historian myself, I realized that what was happening there, we, we had such a very powerful army, but we really didn't know how to use it. And so the idea was to put a, a, a lot of folks a lot of soldiers in vulnerable positions with the hope that it would that we would be attacked and make us look weak and so so that that was the whole thing the whole they just the, the army the american army just tried to set up all these little booby traps to entice the north vietnamese to attack and then they could bring in all of their heavy weapons and destroy it. but the north vietnamese were a little bit smarter than that sometimes they fell into that trap mm-hmm. uh, but for the most part it was just hit and run and very frustrating situation so there you were a couple of weeks and absolutely nothing had happened and then Next thing you know, they're in the wire, and then they're gone. Crazy war it was. Oh yeah. Difficult to differentiate between friend and foe with your interactions with with, with Vietnamese people. I'm sure that must have been very stressful. You know, trying to figure all, all that out. You know, are they Viet Cong or are they in support of of the cause? Or did you find were there any Vietnamese? that were truly supporting the Americans being there and and, and you guys fighting for them, or were were they mainly? more communist aligned. Okay, well, so uh, there we were having a war in a country that was really just trying to get by, right? Trying to make a living. But up in the Central Highlands where I was, there was another whole separate group of people called the Montagnards. They were Polynesian type stock who, no matter what Vietnam government, Vietnamese government was in charge, they were going to be discriminated against. And in some case, just murdered outright. And so, yes, they loved the American army. They were happy that we were there and they were definitely our uh, really strongest uh, allies. So we saw quite a lot of them. I I went out on a number of what we called med caps where uh, we'd volunteer to go out with the doctors and uh, treat the Montagnards and the Vietnamese uh, villages as well. They, unfortunately, the the part, when you're in a country like that, it's basically just trying to survive and the people are still trying to go about their business. And you have a bunch of 18 and 19-year-olds that are just armed to the teeth as if they were battling through France and, you know, against the German army. And you have these people there, but you don't know whether they're friend or foe, quite often that 18 or 19 year old is going to take almost any excuse to let go. And so that's one of the things that as officers, it was really our responsibility was to try to rein them in as much as we possibly could and to keep them occupied in constructive ways and not just 
push them out into the villages. So we did as best we could, but I, I wrote in, in uh, my latest memoir called Don't Blow Yourself Up, which you should buy just for the title alone, right? Yeah, uh, that actually I saw after during the Tet Offensive on the run up to Kantum, uh, an American officer have to draw down on another American officer who was allowing his men to attack a Vietnamese village. So that was uh, quite an eye-opener to, to see that kind of stress. And it was just total stress for everybody that was involved. Well, what was the best thing that you could take from your experience in, in the military and having seen combat? We spoke to other previous soldiers on this podcast, Homer, who had served at the Sharp End. I think you already alluded to it as well. Something that we hear often here on the Hip Historians is you not for very long are you fighting for a concept of freedom or a country it's your buddy right next door and that camaraderie is very hard to replicate in the civilian world but previous soldiers that we've spoken to they hold that very deep and very dear to their hearts to this day as a, as a for want of a better word a, a positive experience that they had uh, experienced through through their combat is is that something you can relate to yeah i mean that's absolutely the truth um the men that i serve with in vietnam are my brothers forever and i would have died for them then and they would have died for me mm. it doesn't mean that that i always did the right thing or they did the right thing or that i didn't get really mad at them while, while i was over there you know and um and vice versa but the fact is we we shared this uh, very, very dangerous uh, situation together, and we, you know, we got we got each other through. And so now we we have that common bond. We we have that common experience. That um, I don't know if it made us better men, but it certainly made us different men who uh, will love each other forever. Yeah, yeah. And would you, when you were coming home, you know, did you decamp back back to? Uh, Cobwood or did you did you land somewhere else and, and what was the reception like was it was it hostile because you're literally you're returning right back at the height of the hippie move, movement yeah. really yeah, yeah. Uh, so I had a couple like? more yeah I had a couple more uh, years of service and um, so as I was going through the airport I had uh, a hippie girl use the f word on me and give me the finger and I all I thought to myself was well honey you're on your own <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go out here and try to have a good life. And so yeah. I did. And the Army, in its wisdom, sent me to Puerto Rico to be a reserve advisor down there. And uh, down there, I learned to scuba dive. And that became a passion for many, many years. I became a scuba instructor. Uh, so I got out of the Army um, uh, in Puerto Rico. And then, well, uh, by then, I had pretty well lost uh, any hope to ever work uh, for NASA or anything like that. The Apollo era was over um, and we were kind of in this down period between uh, Apollo and what would ultimately become the shuttle years. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I looked around and what what I had going for me was that I knew a lot about the Army, uh, but I didn't want to be in the Army anymore. So um, I ended up working for the Army uh, as a Department of Army civilian um, on Redstone Arsenal, which happened to be uh, where Werner von Braun had once built his rockets. And even though I didn't, um, I wasn't working in the space business, I was working on uh, on missile technology, which was kind of interesting to me uh, for a while. Ultimately, I decided to go live in Germany, which I did for three years. And actually, NASA hired me out of Germany. I was over there working yeah. for the Corps of Engineers. And uh, that's that's how NASA hired me in 1981, oh. just as the shuttle started to fly. 
Great timing. Excellent. Good timing. Yeah, yeah, good, good timing. Thinking of renovating or extending your home this year? Perhaps something a little smaller? New bathroom, new kitchen, help with soft furnishings? Well, look no further than Nine Yards Design Interior Design Studio. Based in Dublin 14, their services are for clients who want help planning and creating a beautiful interior for their home. They can do everything from designing the initial concept, scaled drawings, lighting design, colour schemes, soft furnishings and bespoke furniture, through to styling at completion. They have a wealth of experience working on different size projects from one room to a full redevelopment and can offer their services nationwide. So if you're looking for a touch of class or that's something a little bit different that sets you apart from the rest, check out their work at nineyardsdesign.ie. hearted banter uh, the other day at a, at a lunch break. Two of my staff were having a debate over whether America actually landed on the moon or not. And they were going, oh, I don't think they did. And I go, and I go okay, I think you're, you're probably the best person I've, I've met recently who can qualify. Did, uh, did yeah. the moon landings happen? Well, yeah, and what, what, what in a way, just crazy that we bring up this subject. And on a personal note, Homer, to explain my name, my first name is Neil named after neil armstrong so i take i take this quite quite seriously <laughs> well i i um of course i, I didn't work the apollo era but uh, in later years uh, primarily because i wrote rocket boys and that movie was made i got to know most of the apollo astronauts uh, neil and buzz and oh, really wow. and uh, harrison schmidt i uh, was just uh, here a couple of weeks ago before the anniversary of apollo 17 and uh, we have a new planetarium. Uh, I'm on the board at Space Camp here, and we, we have a new planetarium where uh, Harrison Schmidt was the only scientist uh, who ever walked on the moon. He was a geologist. Actually, he had, uh, it, was, it was like we were on the moon with him, and, and you could see all of the tracks and everything that, that the rover made. And he went from like boulder to boulder to boulder that he did, and then he was saying, okay, so um, to the planetarium director, okay, so take me, this is the most amazing thing. Take me around. I want to show you the other side of this boulder. And he's, and the planetarium guy said, I can't do that. And he, Harrison said, why? And he said, because you didn't take a picture of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, I mean, you, there, are, there are telescopes that are powerful enough that we can actually see the rover track to look. very late. So yeah, we did go to the moon, no question Before, about it. Before, <laughs> so many questions, but I just, I gotta ask you about Neil Homer because of the, the personal interest my dad wrote to him not long after the, the moon landings, like at the peak of his reluctant fame. And sure enough, this package right now, I was I was a baby, but I still have it. I, I dig it out now, but I don't want to interrupt the conversation. And it's a signed picture of Neil Armstrong to myself. And it's a treasured possession. You know, you met the man. So for, for, for me speaking to you, who actually knew him, it's I feel like a, a strange connection going back there all the years back to my when my dad, who was a big space. He was the same. He, he was out in the back garden as well. When the moon landings were happening, pointing out, you know, there's men walking on that moon as we speak. So I got to ask you about Neil. I understand, you know, he's got a bit more kind of coverage now through through movies and everything. But he was a, a reluctant hero, right? He was he was quiet. He was well. You 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 explain. You knew him. Yeah, he was shy. He was quite shy. 
so um, the first time that uh, I didn't really meet him, but I observed him was like the 25th anniversary of Apollo 11. He was here in Huntsville for that. So all the bigwigs were just surrounding him and everything. And you could tell just how much he wanted to get away from from them. And so uh, he managed to, and for some reason, I just happened to be out in a hotel lobby and he was over there where the elevator was and pushing the button, just trying. And it's like, it's just how ironic. Here I am watching Neil Armstrong desperately pushing the button in, in, in Huntsville, Alabama to get the elevator to take him up to his room. <laughs> so, uh, but later on, I did get the meeting and he was very shy, mm-hmm. uh, an introvert, if you will, who was kind of forced on the uh, public stage. He was um, really the pilot pilot and uh, he loved engineering. Uh, that's what he, he dearly loved more than anything and accomplishment. And, and that's why they chose him really to go. And uh, because they they knew that he was totally focused on the job, which was to land that limb, which nobody had ever done uh, on, the, on a cratered moon. And he did it. Once he did it, then the, everybody else, all the other astronauts, well, you, hey, we can do it too. But yeah. uh, nobody yeah. knew that uh, for sure until he did it. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, um, but he was a nice man. I, I just put it. Neil Armstrong was a nice man. That's what I like to hear. That's what yeah. I like to hear. Yeah, especially if you're you, know? you did. You did meet Werner von Braun as well. That was it. Was that at the the science fair? Was it? Was that right? Uh, Werner von Braun was at the science fair, and yeah. but I didn't, I did not meet him. Uh, I heard okay. that he was he was in the auditorium. I left my rockets and raced over to where I heard he was, and lo and behold, while I was gone, he comes by and looks at my my and the the the, the students on both sides of it just later reported that he was just he loved what I had done and picked up my nozzles and all that. And did. But when they made the movie. Uh, Joe Johnston, who was the director, said, all right, Homer, I'm going to finally let you meet Werner von Braun. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, he took the special effects guy, his name, name was Joey D. Giatano, Joey D. as we called him, put a little powder in his hair and trotted him out there in front of the cameras to shake Joe, uh, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's hand. And so through Jake and Joey D, I got to meet Werner von Braun. Uh, so by the time I came here uh, to Huntsville and started working for NASA, he had uh, he had passed away by then. Yeah. Uh, I have gotten to know his daughters um, and his son a little bit. They don't live here, but they occasionally come out to space camp to make sure that their father's archives are being treated right. So and then and within that as well, you you trained Japan's first astronauts. I did. I did. So so uh, actually NASA hired me. Yeah. Oddly enough, the the, subject that I took my last year at Virginia Tech was on a IBM 1620. And I learned how to program that computer with uh, a language called Fortran. And I hadn't used it in all those years until I got to Germany in 1978. And working for the core, and they had they wanted to computerize all of their management system. And I said, I can do that for you if you'll buy me a computer. And that lo and behold, they did. And oddly enough, that's why NASA hired me, not because of building rockets or anything, because <laughs> I knew Fortran <laughs> well, and I could program a computer and I could create a management system. So they brought me into the Space Lab program office. The Space Lab was um, a laboratory, a module that fit in the back of the cargo bay. 
And although NASA had designed it, uh, they didn't have enough money to build it, but the European Space Agency, who was trying to make a living there, said, hey, we will we'll build it for you if you'll fly our astronauts and so on. So uh, we went, oh, yeah, okay, that's fine. But the program office was here in Huntsville and Marshall Space Flight Center, so we had to manage all of that. But I did that for them for about six months, and I went, you know, I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. And I was working by then as a, also a volunteer scuba diver in the neutral buoyancy simulator, great big tank of water, where the astronauts come to train in their EMU suits, the extra vehicular, the spacesuit. And so uh, I knew I already met a lot of the astronauts by then. And the space lab office said, well, now we got to train our astronauts. Now we're, we got this thing built. We got to train our astronauts to go work inside of it. And I raised my hand and said, I want to do that. So I became a training manager for, for Space Lab, for the Space Lab uh, program office at that point. And my first assignment was uh, Japan. It was great. <laughs> so uh, I was sent over there to Japan to train their astronauts to work in the Space Lab. And it was uh, it was an amazing experience um, working with the Japanese engineers and managers and technicians and professors and barmaids and everybody that was over there. And uh, I just absolutely fell in love with that country. I did have a little break there. I was there when Challenger uh, went down. And so I was brought back to Huntsville. And that's when I did uh, get a chance to work on rockets for the first time since 1960. I directly worked. <laughs> <laughs> rocket was the solid rocket motors that that had uh, come apart that caused a Challenger explosion. So I was put on that, and I took one look at that at that the way that crazy thing was designed, and said, "Well, Quentin would have never designed a rocket like this. I can tell you that well, this thing is a nightmare. No wonder, you know." So um, uh, we fixed it pretty much. With, with we had to use a lot of the same components, but uh, we did come up with a way to to keep it from coming apart like it did uh, with Challenger. It's never, and they've never come apart since. So I guess we did a pretty fair job. And then I went back to Japan. So after that. Given all the technology you were around, I mean, this to me, it's still alien. Like talking to you on my iPad and getting to see you, you're halfway across the globe. Did you foresee any of this stuff happening? Or is this all, is this all amazing to you as well? Yeah, it's amazing to me. I mean, uh, in the first place, uh, when I grew up, you couldn't have live TV uh, like from Europe or anywhere because it was over the horizon, right? Everything was straight line. So Telstar, I think, was the first communication satellite that went up and uh, it was mostly military applications and so on. But but gradually, I mean, now the, our low Earth orbit is so filled with satellites that are running into each other. And I did not foresee... Uh, any of that. Honestly, I didn't. Of course, the internet age, I think, surprised all of us. Mm -hmm. And here we are being able to talk just like in the same room with me. It's it, 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 no, it, it's pretty amazing, but I'm adaptable. Yeah. You know, and, uh, really. <laughs> and I can figure yeah. it out pretty quick. <laughs> we'll get back onto your own work, Homer, but I'm just curious, what do you think about the efforts now? You know, NASA still works away in the shadow almost now of people like Elon Musk and the other rocketeers out there. What what do you think of, of what they're doing? Are they doing it right? Progressing what NASA already started? Are they going off on a on a tangent? What's your what's your Yeah, opinion? well Elon would tell you that he's standing on the shoulders of giants and he really is. His um 
the first the first rocket engine, the first Falcon ones and nines, basically used uh, the same technology that we had developed. We not not me, but the people here at Marshall Space Flight Center. It was a, a rocket engine called Fast Track, and it was meant to be very simple and very powerful and easily constructed. So he took that as his basis to um, start building his engines. And but now he's exceeded the technology that NASA handed over to him. NASA is, in a lot of ways, trying to recreate Apollo with the Artemis program. Uh, and that's fine. You know, if, believe me, I, there's like a lot of other ways to waste our money, our tax tax money <laughs> than, than that. I mean, we do a lot of it. So I'm all for, you know, if NASA wants to build that big SLS and, and let's go back to the moon, you know, that's fine. Clearly, they're not as nimble as somebody like Elon Musk, even Jeff Bezos with the Blue Origin program. You're much more nimble as a private, uh, in private enterprise uh, to do that. I mean, you know, look look at government trying to run coal mines versus private enterprise. I'm sorry, I can just look right there mm. and go, yeah, it doesn't really, doesn't really work out that well for a lot of different reasons. So if Elon had never happened, then NASA would have plotted along and, you know, and, and gotten there. But Elon's kind of shortening the timeline here, which I like. He's he hopefully is going to make a profit and keep doing what he's doing. I'd like to see uh, NASA really go into advanced uh, propulsion and stop screwing around with chemical rockets. Mm. But uh, that's them. And here's me. And they're going to do whatever they want to do. And uh, I'm just I'm watching it. (laughs) You think what he's doing just as his intentions are good. He's a divisive figure, obviously, through through Twitter and, and all that business. But do, do you think him, like he has a genuine, clearly has a genuine curiosity, if nothing else, do you feel his intentions are, are worthwhile and good? He's coming from a good place in terms of... Well, um, so I can name drop on, on Elon too. I know Elon pretty well. All right. uh, I actually met him at space camp. All right. All right. <laughs> so uh, he came, actually, he had just uh, he had just sold PayPal and made a ton of money. And so he was interested in, interested in space. And if you know his history, he went over to Russia and tried to buy a rocket from them. And they laughed, laughed at him. And he said, well, all right, I'll fix you guys, you know. Mm-hmm. So he came back. He actually went to space camp just for the fun of it. And I met him there with some other uh, uh, millionaires and billionaires that he'd gathered together to go to space camp. And I, he did not particularly impress me, but obviously he had an intensity. The rest of them just went off and didn't do all that much, but obviously Elon did. And when I heard that he was building this Falcon 1 and trying to fly it out on Pacific, and we talk, I think is where he was, um, I started sending him emails and you know saying, good luck expecting him not to, because a lot of other companies had tried to build a private rocket to fly into orbit and a lot of different companies that failed doing that i was sending him emails and he was writing back and you know and his rockets were blowing up and then lo and behold he actually managed to struggle one into orbit uh so i was very impressed by that and uh encouraged him to keep going and so he didn't need my encouragement for sure the only thing is uh he did ask me to come out to spacex in california and give a talk to his employees and i looked around at his factory it was amazing. So on one end is all this raw material. And then on the other end was an actual rocket coming out of the other end. I was very impressed by this. Uh, but I was also impressed by what I saw, all of the accoutrements to this factory. I, I kind of recognized it from my company town days. Elon never wanted anybody to go home. 
that was clear. He had all these different restaurants right there on the factory grounds, you know, from Asian food to fusion food to Italian food. He had actually like a little dormitories where they could go in and sleep, you know. He had he had everything except a barber shop. And I remember, and unfortunately, I remember that we had one uh, at Marshall. And I, I, so anyway, when I talked to his troops, my advice to them was to go home. Yeah. <laughs> Get a life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're going to burn yourself out here. And uh, the, the SpaceX uh, managers didn't much like that. But the fact is, if you look at how long somebody stays with SpaceX, it's, it's, it's like five or six years and they do burn out. They love what they're yeah, doing. Yeah. God knows they love what they're doing, but they do burn themselves out. So you really kind of need a better kind of a balance. I do admire uh, Elon and Gwen Shotwell and uh, all of those folks. That, and the thing about um, Elon, I say Elon is a risk taker. He has a lot more guts than I have. So he had all that money from uh, PayPal that he could have just coasted the rest of his life. Instead, he gambled that on uh, SpaceX and Tesla. That takes a lot of guts. He's the sure. bigger, like, you know, like Richard Branson as well. If there's a chance in our lifetime to go and see space, it'll be through these guys rather than any uh, other agency. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, so so Richard Branson is a neighbor of mine. Wow. Uh, so I'll just keep <laughs> dropping names here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, we own a home down in St. John, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and okay. I can almost make out Necker. <laughs> and um, during the most recent hurricane, some of his flamingos got loose and flew over to St. John, and some of them were hanging around my swimming pool. And I was like, "Go, will you go home to Sir Richard?" You could have held him for ransom, Homer. <laughs> I should have, and you know, I didn't think about it. You know, being the yeah. kind soul that I am, but I should have done that. one flight. I give you your flamingos back yes, and go. Exactly. One, one, one flight. flight. That's a fair deal. That's a two fair flamingos. Deal. One flight. There you go. Yeah, maybe six yeah. flamingos and you can take me and Derek, which is as well, you know. Oh, there yeah. you go. <laughs> Something just earlier that we were talking about, I'd just like to go back to real quick, is the scuba diving. You dive wrecks. Like, this, what this was, was this a hobby? Well, uh, it, no, yeah, well, I was a scuba instructor. So actually, uh, that was like my, I made a little money to the side uh, training divers. But also, again, I wanted to be a writer. Uh, so in 1973, I've been already been writing for a lot of scuba diving magazines. You know, I was freelance writing while I was working for the army and working for NASA. So I was freelance writing. And uh, so I heard that there had been a submarine discovered off of uh, North Carolina, off the outer bank, off the outer banks. And there was some speculation it might be a German U-boat. And it's like everybody was going, man, what's a German U-boat doing out there? So uh, one of the magazines said, go up there, Homer, we'll pay your way. Go up there and dive on the submarine. Tell us what it is. And I studied up a little bit. As soon as I dived on it, I knew it was a German Type 7C U-boat. Wow. With the deck gun blown off. Like, what, <laughs> what is this? So um, I started doing all the research on that. It turned out that the this was the second U-boat that was sunk by American forces during uh, World War II. It was the U-352, and most of its crew had survived. Helmut Rathke was the captain that was still alive in Flensburg, Germany. So there are a lot of Germans in Huntsville. So uh, it didn't take me long to be able to write, have a letter written in German and sent to Captain Rathke, and he wrote back. And so I started to just really get involved with telling the story of the uh, U-boat wars up and down the East Coast during World War II. It turned out almost 500 of our ships um, were sunk during about an eight-month period uh, and eight German U-boats, and two of them I could actually dive on. So 
that ultimately led to my first book. It was a book called Torpedo Junction, which was the true story of the history of the German U-boat wars up and down East Coast. So, it, and so that's still in print, and every once in a while, I still get a, a check for it. Uh, so, so I don't know that that would really qualify as a hobby. Well, you know, I think there's a there because, you know, there's, there's a lot of re- revisionism happening in and around the Second World War. Myself and Derek are avid fans, read all the books about it. And the Battle of the Atlantic, I was only reading recently about it. And obviously the main battle area that historians have focused on is obviously this side of the Atlantic. But I think you're ahead of the curve on this one, Homer, because now they're starting not to discover, but they're starting to explore the reach of the U-boats to the East Coast. And there's there's... There's now recounts from U-boat commanders saying that the Americans took no precautions, right? I mean, they could see cars yeah. driving along. Uh, right. Well, here's what, here's what happened. Of course, Pearl Harbor dragged us into the war. And so the U.S. Navy under Admiral King was only interested in going out, out in the Pacific, having a great big Navy war out there. OK, so that was that was his emphasis. And so he started streaming all his assets uh, toward the Pacific. So what was left over along the East Coast, he basically, Eisenhower was a little bit worried about it. And, um, uh, but he basically told the army, you know, just go to hell because I'm gonna go out and fight the Japanese. All of our, you know, what ended up over in the UK and, and Europe was all, uh, the oil was all coming from down in the Caribbean, Texas and that area, and they had to go right up the East Coast. So if you look at North Carolina, it jets way out in the ocean there, you've got the Gulf Stream, streams by going south to north. So all of these tankers and freighters and everything are catching rides on the Gulf Stream going up. Down comes the Labrador Current on the inside. So all the, the traffic from up there is going down the Labrador Current. They are, there's a, there's a, a neck crunch point right off of Cape Hatteras. U-boats had been over here in World War One. They were not, they knew uh, where the best place to catch these. And yes, you're right. Along the East Coast, there was no blackouts or anything like that. Well, all the ships were lit up. They didn't have to have a blackout. So the U-boats just sat off there and waited for all this traffic to go by. And there was nothing to stop them. There were no minefields or anything. And they just started picking these, you know, tankers and freighters off left and right. And all of the oil and bodies and everything were washing ashore. So the people along the coast knew it, but they clamped down real quick with all kinds of secrecy on it. Uh, so Winston Churchill was was very concerned, and he sent over some trawlers. I think he has six uh, British trawlers that you know were like tugboats, really. And uh, very slow, uh, coal burning, but they were armed to the teeth with, and and the crews knew how to fight the U-boat. So. Uh, he sent them over. Uh, they were they were also easily picked off, unfortunately, uh, by the U-boat. So a couple of them were lost, but they did. You know, they were doing their best, and they held the line while the Coast Guard got itself together, and then ultimately Admiral King was forced to begin convoys. Uh, that's what finally broke the back of the of the U-boats was convoys, and uh, then also aircraft started coming in and started surveilling from air and catching, if they could catch the U-boat in the open. And it was hot in the Gulf Stream. They would go down, just give a little esoteric information. The Gulf Stream is pretty warm, okay? So uh, the U-boats, what they typically did, they only wanted to fight at night, right? And then during the day, they just settle down to the bottom and be quiet, but it got really hot in these things. And so they would every once in a while have to come up and air the place out. If there was any kind of aircraft going around at that time, if they catch them, uh, they'd put them down. 
It was, uh, it was the, uh, I mean, the U-boats really did a lot of damage that uh, could have been avoided if uh, Admiral King had started uh, lights out on shore, yeah. uh, lights out, uh, and we only convoy. They could have saved a lot of lives and a lot of materiel, but that's just the way it worked out. It was tragic. I think some ger- the Germans started to refer to as, as, as their second happy period the first second time. happy time right that's right yeah. happy time because the first time first happy time or first happy time was with you guys yep right. <laughs> yeah, but the and then the yeah other. the royal navy the royal navy really they the royal navy had already defeated the german u-boats by 1942 and so uh yeah so that's why they packed these tiny little submarines filled with supplies. They only had one water closet that worked because the other one was packed full of food and everything else to struggle across the Atlantic because um, they could kill us over here, you know, Mm -hmm. until we figured out the same thing that the Royal Navy had to figure out. Sadly, you've got to convoy these merchant ships. Mm -hmm. We realize that that takes the destroyers and the cruisers and everything else offline. They can't go out and slug it, (laughs) slug it out like the Navy likes to do. It's plotting dull convoy duty, which actually both the Royal Navy and the American Navy really don't like to do. (laughs) I get the impression, Homer, from from speaking to you, you're you're not a man that sits about much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, of course, being a writer, unfortunately, uh, I do have to sit a little bit, but I do like to get out and do things. Uh, I really do. Busy mind, though. A really busy mind. It's all going on, you know? (laughs) Well, I hope so. Um, I hope that I just live life until the last day, the last minute, the, the last hour. Yeah. My latest, uh, I mean, besides, I mean, writing, writing is really the love of my life. I know everybody expects okay. me to be a space guy and all that, but I really love to write. But uh, my latest avocation, if you will, is amateur paleontology. So I've been going out to the Badlands of Montana for the last 20 years every summer looking for dinosaurs. And uh, that's really fun. It's like an Easter egg hunt, you know, and you go out and uh, find this stuff. I, I turn it all into the museum because you know, it's uh, it's for everybody, not just for me. It's pretty cool to find a T-Rex, you know. So. Wow. You've, you've done you found a T-Rex? <laughs> yeah, several. Several. Of them. Wow. Right. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a West Virginia boy. I can tell the difference between a rock and a bone. And you'd be surprised at people that can't. So, because they, they're all mixed up together and they kind of look alike. And so it takes a while to get your, uh, the dinosaur bone eyes on, if you will. But I just love it. I love being out there uh, and meeting the ranchers who live out there and sharing time with them. You know, uh, what people are interested in, and I learned this writing novels, what people are really interested in is other people. And you can have the best plot ever known to mankind, but if you don't have interesting characters in there, nobody's yeah. going to care to turn the page. And I'm the same way. I'm, what I'm interested in is other people. So I may be out there looking for old bones, 65 million year old bones, but actually I'm fascinated by these people who choose to live out okay. there. Full time, you know? uh, so, uh, so yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Right. Your, your life has gone the whole gamut from ancient prehistory all the way to the futuristic. Yeah. We have covered it all here in one episode. You're like a living, you know, walking encyclopedia of history. <laughs> I don't yeah. know about that. Uh, well, I, I've been blessed. Uh, I really have been blessed um, with uh, pretty good health and um, knock on wood, being able to. To, you know, again, I think it all become it's like you guys. I'm sure you read a lot. You read a lot when you're kids and uh, you get intrigued 
intrigued by things that yeah. most people don't care about. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and it's like, how do we get where we are? Most people don't care. But if you don't know how you got here as his, as a historian, then how can you really figure out what's happening in the world? And we certainly see a lot of examples right now with what's happening that's happened before. And uh, for those of us who are historians, well, you're much more than I am, but you, you know how all this is going, how it's going to work out because it always works out this way, right? You can kind of predict what's going to happen with the present situation, but clearly we don't learn from, from the past. And so we're just going to have to go through it again, sadly. And well, hopefully it, it won't get any worse than what's happened before, but, but we'll see. Pretty scary time right now, actually. This is why it's so important. You know, we, we discussed this before in this podcast, haven't we, Derek, about I think even in England, there were some su suggestions to drop history, you know, mm. from school curriculum. curriculum. Which, yeah, can't do that. You know, yeah. yeah and, well, you know what? It's uh, so it's become a, upon people as yourselves, you make history interesting. Right. So if you make it just all dull and you just talk about, uh, I don't know, um, just, dates and facts and yeah, yeah, dates and facts and, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, even geography. Uh, somebody once said that uh, war is the way Americans learn geography. Right. Yeah. right? <laughs> Honest to goodness, I never heard of Vietnam until they decided to have a war there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a bad way of learning it <laughs> but you're, you're hitting it on the head you know Homer this is what we, we feel you know if history can be written poorly shall we say it's important but not poorly that's the wrong word you know it's important that's documented but you have these dusty old tones that it's just not going to sell you you already you know hit the nail on the head it's it's characters it's stories it's who we yeah. are it's about yeah I, I I was not taught anything uh, uh, ever right on through college about the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. I knew nothing about the Napoleonic Wars except the British came over and burned down the White House for no apparent reason. It's like, where are you now? We could use you now. I'm uh, just kidding. But anyway, uh, so, <laughs> so when I was over in Germany and didn't have much else to do, I just went to the base library and started re reading the Horatio Hornblower books. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. My eyes were open. I knew nothing about this. And and I have loved that era ever since. I read just about everything I can get uh, about that era, which... Um, that that uh, would yeah. be Neil. That would just be didn't Neil. know anything no, about that's, it. That's, that's exactly it. And, and, you know, from reading those books, then you want to go and see where these things happen. So obviously, right. I've been to Waterloo so many times, and, in, in, you know, in... in modern Belgium, it's only 20 kilometers outside the capital city. But most people just drive past it. They don't even know that one of the most biggest epic battles in history happened just right. And it's very well maintained. So farmhouses there with, you know, musket ball holes in the walls. It's incredible. So Derek, you've been to Verdun, which is a World War One uh, battlefield. They're right. We're lucky in Europe, I, su I suppose, Homer, that these are right on our, they're, they're, they're like a $40 flight away. Well, yeah, you know, I, I read the Sharp series, Bernard Cornwell Sharp oh, yeah. series, Great which, yeah. includes, which includes yeah. the Battle of Waterloo, which was all illuminating to me. I didn't know very much about it. I'd love to go back. I've seen a number of documentaries now yeah. on it and um, how um, how the that the land was just perfect for yeah. 
for the UK, for the British troops, and then for the German troops. And Napoleon was just kind of stuck with this. And then it chose to rain, you know. God gets his hand in there too, right? So all that's just really fascinating to see. Now we do live, um, now where I grew up wasn't that far from a number of major civil war battles. I was about to ask you that. Yeah, I was yeah. about to ask you that. Yeah, so... Um, I went to Gettysburg, I guess, about 20 years ago, though I had not been up there to see it. It's all covered with memorials. It's kind of hard to visualize now. It's so, right. so decorated and kind of touristy, which is mm. unfortunate. Some of the southern battlefields um, are around just um, in the wilderness. Actually, Virginia Tech is right at the neck of the wilderness, which was a big battle toward the end of, of the Civil War. Um, my so the Hickams, the Hickam families came over here um, in the early 1700s. They were British, but they lived in Ireland for oh, wow. for several generations. And oh. then you know, so they, apparently they were on the run. From, <laughs> okay. So uh, they were sent over. Uh, so they came over, and they they ended up settling in the Appalachian. Two of the brothers ended up um, being in the Confederate cavalry. Right. Um, legend has it that they stole both of their horses at the end of the war. So, I don't know. <laughs> um, but anyway, they were farmers. They were basically farmers. Is all they were. They got caught up in the in this thing. They did. I'm sure they didn't own a slave, or even had probably never even seen a slave where they were. But they were back in the mountains, you know. So they really didn't see yeah. that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, they just got like most of us. They got caught up in the great currents of history and wars and everything, and thrown in on one side or the other. I was just commenting somebody the other day. So in 2009, the State Department asked me to go back to Vietnam to talk to uh, Vietnamese students about uh, coming to American universities, which I was happy to do. I never intended to go back, but um, I ended up um, mostly talking to high school students and so on, and just having a great time and 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 feeling a little bit sad that, that they had once been my enemy because they're just so, such a wonderful people. But I did end up sitting across the table from some former North Vietnamese Army soldiers. And uh, we had to use translator a little bit, but um, a couple of them understood English. We basically agreed that neither of our governments was worthy of our sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> and that um, that if if they called us back at this moment, they would have some difficulty making us do what they had done all those years ago. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, we'd be sitting back with our gin and tonics and they'd be saying, you guys need to go up that mountain. And we'd be saying, why are all the B-52s broken? I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, again, people are people. Gov people don't cause wars, governments do. And uh, so you gotta be yeah. really wise on who you get, choose. And generally we're get not. kids to fight them. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> yeah sure. you get kids to fight them and then resent them when they come back all broken. Then you have to take care of yeah. them. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's nasty business. It's a crazy scenario. To put you on the spot, perhaps, but like we've been kind of polling our American friends when they come on the show about the possibility of secession. So a State of the Union question. Do you think the Union is strong? Do you think there's any chance that you would have a breakaway republic? No, not at all. Um, okay. No. Okay. Yeah. no <laughs> that's not going to happen. Right, <laughs> Don't worry. Don't fret. That's the last yeah, thing you need to worry about. We're not going anywhere. Yeah. They got too much of our money in Washington for us to <laughs> even think about leaving. We're not going anywhere. Sorry. <laughs> that gives us a chance to get over there, Derek. 
that's that's for sure I, I think we've got to start wrapping it up guys I mean we yeah could... no, it was an amazing conversation what a life what a life I, I don't want to take up too much of Homer's time because he's going to go out and discover another dinosaur or another planet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah or a new planet. Right now, I'm working with Hollywood again. I have to tell you, I'm working with Hollywood oh, wow. again. Yeah, so, uh, that's, that's so I was, we usually yeah. kind of what, you know, ask our guests what, what they're up to right now. So Yeah, what, yeah. so um, one of the uh, sequels to Rocket Boys was a book I wrote called The Colwood Way, which was kind of a Christmas story with the Rocket Boys. Just a couple of years ago, I managed to get the rights back to the characters that are in Rocket Boys. And so I uh, had uh, some producers come to me and ask me if, if I'd ever written a screenplay, would I write one based upon one of the other books besides Rocket Boys? And I chose the Coldwood way. You know, I like Christmas. So I sat down and wrote a screenplay and sent it out. And it was like, golly, Homer, this is actually good. <laughs> so so uh, right now we are uh, serious about um, making the movie based making on the movie. way we'll probably call it december sky how original Can yeah you know? um okay. and uh, and we'd like to film it up in west virginia so um so yeah i'm working on that and then maybe a series based upon uh the rocket boys as well and then i gotta write some more books and then i gotta do some other stuff yeah. but, why, uh, not? why not why not <laughs> just pack as much in as you yeah know. yeah yeah and with all that's going on we're very very appreciative of your time homer you've, you've yeah you know, Oh. that's the, the mark for us which my pleasure you know all, all your amazing yeah. tales i think any like i said at the start of the interview we could have taken any one of those aspects of your mm -hmm. life and just focused on that so maybe you'll come on again sometime to the historians please sure i'd absolutely love to you guys are great to talk to and you're interesting and you're interested in the same thing that i'm interested in and um so i would love to uh, to have another conversation <laughs> or three fantastic well, you're welcome anytime we will definitely extend the invitation again but for the moment homer hickam yeah. what a what a pleasurable interesting fascinating inspiring and exhausting guests and we can't yeah. keep up <laughs> take care homer thank you guys thank you, so much. Thank you. hey what a great a, show a uh, cool gentleman indeed and um, a man with eight decades of history to talk about, and he went back 65 million years as well. And something that uh, I'm afraid, listeners, that you didn't get to uh, see there, just as Homer was exiting, he um, came out with a Triceratops horn. <laughs> As you do. So we, yeah, as you do. As you do. Yeah, so we, we had a small chat with him about that. Of course, you guys on podcasts wouldn't be able to benefit from the visuals, but um, nevertheless, yeah. The, the previous 50, 60 minutes of a, like, what a trip back what a trip. into the future. That man has lived a life. He's... yeah. It makes you feel bad about your own life, almost. <laughs> <laughs> you, may, you may pause to reflect now, Neil. And we I am. See, I got uh, a new Neil next week. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll be. I'll be somewhere else. Listen, thanks very much, um, listeners. Keep on. Yeah, keep keep in. tuning in. Do mm -hmm. sign up in the sense that you might leave us a small donation of a euro to keep the show on the road would be greatly appreciated and you can do this from wherever you are getting your podcast. All right. Take care. Good night, everyone. Thank you. And good night, everyone.